Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. The word of the Lord comes to us this morning from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. But before we hear uh, this word of the Lord, please allow me to provide some helpful context. It's believed that Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned in Rome sometime around 62 A.D., But unlike some of Paul's other writings, this particular letter was not written to correct bad doctrine or sinful behavior. Rather, this is actually a very encouraging and friendly letter. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in order to thank them for their faithful support of his ministry and to encourage them to continue to live in a way that was worthy of the gospel. Paul then explains in chapter 2 that in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, one must be first and, firm, first and foremost an imitator of Christ. In other words, Christ's life is the blueprint for Christian living. This means that all Christians are called to live a life of humble and selfless service in obedience to God for the good of others. All Christians, in imitation of Christ, are called to live a life of humble and selfless service in obedience to God for the good of others. Then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul commends two men to us, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who both exemplify this kind of lifestyle. And then finally, in chapter 3, Paul describes his own Christian experience or life to serve as yet another helpful example of what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. And that's exactly what our passage this morning is all about. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul encourages us from his own example how to live a life worthy of the gospel. And in this passage, we learn three very important things about Paul. We first learn about what Paul doesn't do, what Paul doesn't do. Second, we learn about what Paul does do. And then third and lastly, we learn why Paul does what he does. So what Paul doesn't do, what Paul does do, and why Paul does what he does. And with this in mind, let us now hear from God's holy word in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Thus says the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching and hearing of his word this morning. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, 
we do pray that you would speak to your people through your word this morning. And we ask that you would give us hearts and ears to hear and to receive, Lord, what it is that you're telling us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work amongst us and in our hearts to sanctify us and to make us more into Christ's image. We ask these things for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so those closest to me know that one of my favorite things to do is brag to them about how great I am. For example, I often enjoy telling my mom what a perfect son she's raised and how I'm so much better than my older brother, who is nowhere near as good a son as I am. I like to say that she really got it right the second time around, and that no one can blame her for loving me more. Likewise, from time to time, I enjoy reminding my wife, Sue, just how lucky she is to have married the perfect man. So incredibly handsome, wise, strong, and witty, yet also compassionate and caring. And most importantly, let's not forget humble. (laughs) I'm also extremely humble. But for uh, some strange reason, whenever I remind my darling wife of the incredible gift that she's been given, she just has a tendency to smile a little awkwardly and maybe nervously at me while shaking her head in a disapproving way. And for the life of it, I just can't understand why. No, wait, maybe it's not true. Maybe if I am being honest, just maybe, it's perhaps because Sue knows just how far from perfect I really am. You see, the truth is that even though I like to pretend otherwise, I'm still very much a work in progress. Sue does her best to help me, but I still have a long, long, long way to go before I'm perfect. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is making a similar point about himself. In verse 13, Paul tells us the one thing he doesn't do is consider that he has made it his own. In the New American Standard Bible, this verse is translated as saying, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. Now, this begs the question, what is it exactly that Paul has not yet made his own? What has he not yet laid hold of? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to turn back to verses 8 and 9, where Paul explains that he has suffered the loss of all things in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of his own that comes from obedience to the law, but rather a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ as a gift from God. Now, what I want to call your attention to in these verses is the fact that Paul says that he has no righteousness of his own. The only, the only righteousness that Paul has is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. 
which is given to him by God. Now, this is an important verse because it's one of the places in Scripture where Paul is describing for us what is called the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification teaches that the moment a person puts their faith in Christ for their salvation, God credits that person with Christ's righteousness. So then a person is justified or made right with God on the, not on the merit of their own righteousness, but on the merit of Christ's righteousness. In other words, when any individual puts their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their legal status before God, who is their judge, changes from guilty to innocent. Because God covers or hides that person, that guilty person, in Christ's perfect righteousness. And then he declares them innocent. This is what Paul says has happened to him in verses 8 and 9. And so we must realize that the righteousness Paul has is an alien or foreign righteousness. It's the righteousness that does not inherently belong to Paul. It comes from without and not from within. It's as if Paul has been dressed with the king's royal garments, even though he himself is a filthy and unworthy peasant. His inward condition, therefore, does not match his outward appearance. So when Paul writes in verse 13 that he does not consider that he has made it his own, he is simply recognizing this important fact. Paul is rightfully recognizing that he has never, even for a second, lived up to the way in which God sees him. And that's because when God looks at Paul, all he sees is the perfect righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ, despite the fact that Paul himself remains a sinner. Paul then is highlighting a very important distinction in our passage between what theologians call our justification and our ongoing sanctification. Justification is that one-time event in which a person is instantly and unalterably declared righteous the moment they trust in Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the lifelong process in which a person is gradually brought into greater and greater conformity with that righteousness. Sanctification is that process in which a person is made more and more like Christ. Justification then has to do with our outward appearance or our outward status before God, whereas our ongoing sanctification has to do with our inward condition. And in verse 13, Paul is simply saying, that he has not yet reached the point in the process of his sanctification 
where he can say that his inward condition is equal to his status. To state the matter more clearly, when Paul says that he has not yet made it his own, or that he has not yet taken hold of it, he means that he has not yet achieved perfect conformity to Christ's righteousness. Now, let's just pause here for a moment to appreciate the fact that the Apostle Paul, someone who actually saw and spoke with Christ, someone who wrote something like 28% of the New Testament, was not afraid to admit that he wasn't perfect. And when Paul admits that he's not perfect, we need to clarify that he's confessing he's still a sinner who does sinful things that have harmful consequences. That is, after all, what it means to not be perfect, to be a sinner who does sinful things that have harmful consequences. That is what Paul is saying about himself. A lesser leader would be afraid to admit as much for fear of losing the confidence of their follower. But Paul freely admits it because he doesn't want his readers to be under the false impression that followers of Christ can actually achieve perfection in this life. And the reason why Paul can freely admit such a thing is because he is fully assured that he has already been justified before his creator. Not on the merit of his righteousness, but on the merit of Christ's righteousness. As a result, he can freely confess his sinfulness to others because Paul has nothing to prove. The question is for us, is can we do the same? Are we free to admit to ourselves and to others that we're not perfect? And when we're confronted with the horrible and sometimes tragic consequences of our own sinful imperfection, are we prepared to hide ourselves away in Christ and to trust in his perfect righteousness and to let that be enough for us. Now, as I see it, there are typically two types of Christians that you can find in most churches. The first type are those of us who have a very hard time with being real with others about our own sinfulness. And so we're constantly trying to appear as if we've got it all figured out. But we're also very good at making excuses for ourselves when people begin to see our faults. Sure, we might give lip service to the fact that we're not perfect, but how we live our lives and how we treat others testifies to the fact that we think very differently about ourselves. These are the kind of people who can't handle being told that they're wrong, And these are the kind of people who have a very difficult time receiving instruction from others. That's the first type of person that you can find in church. The second type of person are those of us who seem to have an all-too-easy time 
with being real with others about our own sinfulness. We've been taught very early on that God does not save us because of our works and that there is always more grace for the sinner. And while that may be true, we're often very quick to throw up our hands and to admit to anyone who's listening, hey, we're not perfect. We don't have it all figured out. Now, that may sound all right to you, but the problem with that kind of person, however, is that this person may be a little too comfortable with their own sinfulness. It doesn't grieve them like it should. And as a result, they're not all that motivated to change. But as we'll see in our passage, the Apostle Paul doesn't respond to his sinfulness in either of these two ways. He doesn't try to cover it up and make excuses for himself, nor does he simply shrug it off and accept it as the status quo. Instead, in verse 14, he tells us, Paul tells us that he presses on. And that is the one thing that Paul does. Paul presses on. And here he's simply repeating what he just said prior to this in verse 12, where he writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. In other words, even though Paul doesn't yet consider himself to be perfect like Christ, that doesn't stop Paul from trying to be perfect like Christ. Now, the main verb in, four, in uh, verse 14 is this word uh, diako, which is translated as I press on. Now, that translation doesn't quite get at the heart of what that word means, I think. Because to press on, in my mind, gives us the impression that Paul is kind of slowly and stubbornly making progress in the face of enemy resistance. Diaco actually means to pursue or to run after something. So Paul is not just slowly marching along in an effort to be more like Christ. What Paul means to convey by his language here is that he is running at full speed after his Lord and Savior. He's exerting all of his strength and energy in order to mortify his sin and to grow in holiness in order to become more like Jesus. You see, it's not enough for Paul to be justified by Christ's righteousness. Paul also wants to be thoroughly and completely sanctified in Christ's righteousness. As a result, he's not satisfied with knowing that one day far off in the future when he has a resurrected body that he will be made perfect. Paul simply cannot wait that long. He wants to do away with his sin now. He wants to be made righteous like his Lord and Savior now. And so he does whatever he can now 
in order to achieve that goal. That's, and that's how Paul is calling us to live from his example. In verse 17, he says, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the point is simple here. We are supposed to be pursuing or chasing after perfection as we see it in our Lord and Savior. We are supposed to be growing in holiness now. But please don't understand, misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should pretend to be perfect. That's not the answer. We should always be honest and forthcoming about our own sinfulness. But that doesn't mean that we should be comfortable remaining as we are. You see, Jesus may love you for who you are now, but it's not his intention to leave you that way, which is why he tells us in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, you therefore, Christian, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the call. It's always been the call for God's people, which is why in the Old Testament we can even see God telling his people back then that they must be holy because he is holy. Likewise, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, we were not created in Christ Jesus so we could keep on sinning. We were not made new creatures in Christ so that we could continue to be the same self-centered, judgmental, and unforgiving people that we've always been. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm wearing a ring on my finger as a sign that I'm a married man. And somewhere in the county clerk's office in Philadelphia, there's a marriage license that has my name on it. And together, these things have provided me with a new identity. I was once Matt Collins, the bachelor, and now I'm Matt Collins, the husband. As a result, it's now entirely inappropriate for me to live like I used to when I was unmarried. Instead, I must live in such a way that is becoming of a husband. But consider this as well. Before I got married, I didn't have to live like a married man. You see, that would have made it rather difficult to go on dates and to eventually meet my wife. Well, in the same way, before we knew Christ, we didn't have to live like perfect people in order for God to save us. God saved us out of his own pity, kind of like Sue had pity on me. <laughs> but now that we are saved, and now that we do know Christ, we are called to live perfectly. And just like how any married person out of love ought to be the best husband or wife that they can be, in order to please their spouse, so too should we as Christians, out of love, 
ought to try to be perfect disciples in order to please our Lord and Savior. And when I say that we should try to be perfect, what I mean is that we should be exerting all of our strength, all of our energy to reach that goal like Paul does. But how exactly is this done is what we want to know. You've told us what we must do, Paul, and now tell us how to do it. What does it look like to go all out in pursuit of perfection? Well, in verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us from his own experience that it involves doing two things. It involves forgetting what is behind you first, and then second, straining forward to what lies ahead of you. Forgetting what is behind you, straining forward to what lies ahead of you. That is how you pursue Christ's perfection. Now, when, I, when Paul says that he forgets what lies behind him, he doesn't mean that he has erased from his memory everything that has happened in his life up until that point, as if that were even possible. And we know that's what he, he doesn't mean that because in chapter 3, in the first six verses, he just described his previous life as a very impressive Pharisee. So what does Paul here mean then when he tells us to forget? Well, I think Paul is simply rewording what he's already said to us in verse 8, where he writes... Uh, which is that he regards his former Christless life as rubbish or as worthless. And because of that, he doesn't waste, Paul doesn't waste any time grieving or fantasizing over his past experience. Paul doesn't grieve what he did in the past and what he's guilty of in the past. And he doesn't look back on it longingly, in favor of it, wanting it or desiring it. He forgets about it. He moves forward. But that's not the only thing that Paul runs from. Let's not forget that Paul has been describing himself as a runner who's chasing after perfection, which means that the only thing he cares about is progress. This implies that not only does he forget about his past life as a Pharisee, but Paul also forgets about everything he's achieved as an apostle of Christ up until that point. Meaning that no matter how many people Paul baptizes, no matter how many churches he plants, and no matter how many gains uh, he makes in pursuit of his own personal holiness, Paul is never satisfied. Paul is never satisfied. He never, even for a moment, looks back to consider his past achievements or how far he's come. He never dwells on his own success as so as to pat himself on the back. And that's because Paul is too busy straining or reaching forward to what lies ahead of him. Like a sprinter, you see, Paul is widening his stride, pumping his arms, accelerating his legs, pushing out his chest. Paul strains with all of his might 
and focuses on nothing else except reaching that finish line. That's how Paul lives his Christian life, because that's how badly he wants to be like Christ. Now, here's where I need to confess that I struggle to relate to Paul here. I really do. Personally, I don't know what it's like to want to be like Christ as much as Paul does. And if I'm being honest, I think it's probably because I'm so caught up in myself most of the time. And the danger with being so self-centered and self-focused is that when we do that, we tend to take our eyes off of the holiness of Christ and we start looking around at other people. We start comparing ourselves to other Christians. As a result, you let other people's holiness or the lack of it become the standard for your behavior, which means you only do what you have to do in order to convince yourself that you're just as good as all the other Christians around you, or maybe even a little better. And when this happens, we allow ourselves to become, uh, to become complacent. And we fail to pursue perfection as it is seen in Jesus Christ. So then the question we need to ask ourselves is how? How can I avoid this spiritual pitfall in order to faithfully run the race that has been set before me? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to consider why Paul does what he does, which is the third and final point of our text. Let's look at verse 14 again. According to the Christian Standard Bible, Paul writes here, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, the goal that Paul presses on towards is perfection. I hope that much is obvious by now. That's the goal that Paul is striving for. But the prize is something else. You see, Paul doesn't just pursue perfection for the sake of being perfect, nor does he pursue perfection in order to go to heaven someday. Rather, Paul pursues perfection in order to enjoy a perfect communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ that is unhindered and unobstructed by sin. In other words, Paul does everything he can right now in order to mortify his sin and to grow in holiness so that one day he can enjoy a perfect relationship with a perfect God in Jesus Christ. This is the prize that he so desperately longs to attain. And this is what motivates Paul and what keeps him from becoming complacent. Because Paul wants to experience some of that perfect communion and fellowship even now. He wants to taste it. He wants to know of it. So then if we would like to be, so if we want to be like Paul, and if we want to avoid the spiritual pitfall of becoming lazy and apathetic in our pursuit of holiness, 
we have to begin to cultivate a desire for that perfect relationship with Christ the way that Paul does. Perfect communion with Jesus must be what the Christian prizes most of all in this life. It has to be what we long for over and above everything else. But here's the tricky part. This is where it gets difficult. Because before we can even have that desire for Christ, we must, become, we must first become disgusted by our own sinfulness. We have to become disgusted by our own sinfulness. John Calvin, in his Institutes, writes, we cannot seriously aspire to God before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Likewise, J.C. Ryle says, you will do just nothing at all and make no progress till you feel your sin and weakness. That's the key. That's the key. In order to prize Christ, we have to recognize our need for him. And you can only recognize your need for Christ when you recognize just how awful you are without him. Now, in light of this, it's a miracle that Paul himself was saved. Because Paul, when he was still Saul, was not displeased with himself in the slightest. Paul thought he was the bee's knees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Paul was blameless. In other words, before he was a Christian, Paul knew nothing of his own sinfulness or need for Christ. So then what happened to him? What made him change from Saul to Paul? The answer is he was called heavenward by God. That means he was called from death to life. He was called from sin and darkness into, sin, into light and holiness. When he was confronted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And that's why Paul pursues Christ the way that he does. He states this more plainly in verse 12, where he writes, I press on to make it my own simply because Jesus Christ has made me his own. In other words, Paul strives to lay hold of Christ because Christ has already laid hold of him. This means that before anyone can desire Christ or run after him, Christ must first call that person to himself. And once that happens, once Christ has called you to himself, a person cannot simply sit still and remain as they are. When God calls someone heavenward, 
that person is now compelled by the force of the Holy Spirit to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and to run with endurance the race that has been set before them as they look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. So in conclusion, Paul calls us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel by following his example. And we have seen that the one thing Paul doesn't do is consider himself to be perfect. But we've also seen that the one thing that he does do is strive for perfection. That is, he strives to mortify his sin and to grow in holiness in order to be more and more like Jesus Christ. So that one day he can experience that perfect communion and fellowship with his Lord and Savior. And lastly, we've seen that Jesus Christ is both the beginning and the end of Paul's Christian life. It is Jesus who is the one who enables Paul to run in the first place. And it is Jesus who is his prize when he finishes that race. So as I close this morning, I would like to challenge us all with this final and very important question. Are you in the race with Paul? Are you running the same race as Paul is running? And be honest. Be honest with yourself. Because if you are laying down or if you are chasing after something else, then my friend, I tell you, you have not heard the, uh, you have not been called heavenward by God. Because the only people who have heard the upward call of God are those who are actually busy pursuing holiness in order to attain more perfect communion with him. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I am not saying that we all have to be as far along in the race as Paul is. I'm not saying that we all have to be running as fast as Paul is running. I'm not saying that we all have to match his level of intensity and desire. But you do have to be running. You have to be chasing after Christ. And you should be trying your absolute best to attain the perfect communion and fellowship with him. Because this is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was martyred for the faith by the Nazis during World War II, once said, the only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. Think about that. The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. So then, with those words ringing in our ears, 
and I do hope that they ring in our ears. Let us seek God now and pray that his grace would compel us to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, causing us to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we do confess that we have in so many ways failed to treasure Christ as we should. We have not loved you with all our heart. We have not loved you with all of our soul. And we have not loved you with all of our mind. As a result, we have become lazy and complacent in our efforts to become more like Jesus. O Lord, would you have mercy on us sinners And would you grant forgiveness to your people? Would you fill us with the fruits of Christ's righteousness and enable us through the power of your Holy Spirit to work out our salvation with fear and trembling that we might be your blameless and innocent children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation to the glory and praise of God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.